Welcome to the Hope Elam Podcast. We are a diverse church in the heart of Des Moines, seeking to bring God's kingdom as we live more like Jesus. We hope that what you're about to hear points you to Jesus Christ. Know that we're praying for you and look forward to connecting with you soon. Hope Elam. What do you do with the fear that surrounds you? What do you do when fear is swarming all around you? That's the situation that our good friend Bruce Wayne finds himself in. You might know him as Batman, but maybe what you didn't know is the backstory of the whole movie. What do you do when fear is all-consuming? What do you do when everything around you is saturated in fear. It's the world that we find ourselves in today. We're not starting with that clip for no reason or just because it's a pretty epic movie, which I think it is as well. I can't stand bats. Anybody with me? I just, I don't know if I was, if that were you, if that were me, if that was the scene, I, I honestly, I don't know what I would do. And for Bruce Wayne, he's literally staring fear in the face, which is completely different posture than he had as a young boy. If you know anything about the film, it's, well, I'm going to break it to you. It's been out 15 years, so too bad. Sorry. Uh, Bruce Wayne has a fear of bats. That's where the whole story is based on. That's what the whole thing is predicated on, is as a young boy, he falls into this cave, and all of a sudden, he's consumed and surrounded by bats, and the rest of his life is based on how is he going to respond to the fear all around him. The rest of that entire trilogy is based on how a little boy is going to grow up and become a man and respond to the fear that surrounds him, surrounds the pain in his life, responds to the the pain and the suffering that surrounds him. How do you respond when your life is saturated by fear? And yet something later on in the film has shifted in Bruce. Now as a man, as he's training to become the Batman, he is able to stand in the middle of his greatest fear all around him and experience peace. And I think if we're honest, particularly after the last few weeks that it's been, in our world, in our nation, in our city, and maybe in your life, that's exactly what you long for as well. There is something inside of us that longs to experience the peace that only God can give. And it starts at a very young age. We long for it, but fear is a very real thing. A couple years ago with our kids, they were a little bit younger at the time. We were coming home from a family walk, and it was getting about to dusk. It was getting a little darker, and our kids, as I'm sure your kids and grandkids, well, they don't like the dark. So we're trying to get home before it's dark, and there's all sorts of weird things, and sounds get a little spookier at night and all of that, and we're walking home, and all of a sudden, I feel two little hands gripping very tightly the back of my leg, and I turn around, and it's our daughter, Evie, and she looks up at me with these great big eyes, and I said, honey, what's wrong? And she said, Daddy, I'm just so scared. And I said, well, I had to kind of look around. Like, what, what are you scared of? It's not even completely dark yet. And she didn't have the words to describe. And I'll, I'll just, I just never forget. She just looked up at me and she didn't have the words. She just said, Daddy, I'm so scared of lots of things. And when you're five, you're scared of lots of things. 
But when you're 40 or nearing 40 or 50 or 60 or 80 or 90 or whatever you happen to be today, that never goes away, does it? Because in that moment, she trusted me as I knelt down next to her to try to reassure her and get at her level that everything was going to be okay and and that her parents were right there with her and that nothing's going to change that. She's very trusting. She still has that innocence and the naivete in life and that childlike faith that says, I know that I'm going to be okay, that I can trust you. But as we become adults, we're not so trusting, are we? Because we realize that our world right now here today on June 5th, 2022, is saturated in fear. Everywhere. And fear sells. Cable news is predicated on selling you as much fear as they can. It doesn't mean it's not real. Oh, it's real, all right. A war in Ukraine, a pandemic that just doesn't go away, and now an epidemic of gun violence that is hit, yes, across the nation, but right here locally as of Thursday night. Ten minutes from where I grew up in Story City in Ames, Iowa, on the national news. Oh, it's real, all right. Fear is all around us, and for some of you, fear is very real. It's very personal. It lives inside of you today. If you're honest, you're consumed by it. Your finances, your relationship, what's going to happen in the future. I'm fearful for my kids. I'm fearful for my grandkids. It's easy to be saturated by fear. I'm afraid. And some of you are saying, oh, no, John, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not scared of anything. I don't live in fear. Well, we just kind of use different words for it. <laughs> I'm a little stressed out. I'm a little anxious. I'm a little overwhelmed because that's a little bit of a softer blow, but at the root of it is fear. We're scared, and the reality is in our lives that the root of fear is the realization that we're not in control. Whether that's my five-year-old daughter or you as an adult today, the realization that we're not in control, and that can either drive us away from God or towards God? What are you going to do with your fear is the ultimate question. What are you going to do with the fear that lives inside of you? Now, sometimes I think fear can get a bad rap. We get a little confused about that. We read in scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a different kind of fear. We're talking about standing in awe of God, of having a healthy respect and awe and reverence for God. Some people are like, we're supposed to fear God. That he's going to be this angry God up in heaven and then we're going to live in fear if if I'm a dirty, rotten sinner that I'm going to mess up. That's what Jesus came to put to death, by the way, is the legalism that some of us live in as Christians. That here's all these things I got to do. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus plus my good works and Jesus plus me being a good person so that God doesn't become angry and smite me. It's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is Jesus has already accomplished the victory for us. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about today. Fear gets a bad rap. Sometimes fear can be a really good and healthy thing. If my kids are running into the street, I have a good, healthy fear to yell at them and to get them out of the street. Fear helps us abide by the laws or rules or the fear of of, of disease. And so we, we work out and we try to eat healthy, all of that. Fear makes us maybe not want to get a speeding ticket. And so we drive the speed limit most of the time. Fear can be a good thing. And at the same time, walking by faith, doesn't mean that we check our brains at the door. 
Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, doesn't mean that we don't check out with our minds and operate in wisdom. We try to make the best decisions that we can. We live in a world that is saturated by violence. We live in a world that is broken, that is dark, and yet we do everything that we can to walk in faith and yet use the minds that God has given us, and we take the steps that we can take and the wisdom that God's given us. That's why we have some incredible teams around here at the church keeping us safe in the world that we live in. We have an incredible volunteer safety and security team that are all over this church right now, and they have those cool little earpieces. Yeah, absolutely. Praise God for them. And um, I always tell them, someday when I grow up and figure out what I'm going to do when I'm going to grow up, I want to be like them and have one of those as well. And we are also incredibly thankful that both on Wednesdays and Sundays we have a strong presence here from the Des Moines Police Department, and God knows they need our prayers, and we're so thankful for them as well. Um, I'm really thankful for the, the, the Des Moines Police Department because they're some of our best volunteers on Wednesday night handing out food uh, as well, and so they're awesome. We're so thankful for them. What do you do with the fear that surrounds you. This is real. There's a reason that the Bible gives this command almost more than any other command 365 times, believe it or not, in Scripture. Not ironically, one for every day. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is not a suggestion. This is a command from God. Jesus echoes this in the New Testament. Paul picks up on this in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Let's read this nice and loud. You've had your coffee. You've had your breakfast pizza. 11 o'clock service voices. Let's read it together. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, some of you are looking at that and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Just pray about it. Okay. Some of you are looking at that going, yeah, are you kidding me? Do not be anxious about any, no, I'm I'm, going to pray about some things, but there's some things in my life that I just need to control. Because when I I feel in control, then I don't have to be afraid, and I'm going to hold those things back from God. And it says, do not be anxious about anything. Some of you are thinking, that's impossible. Because I feel afraid a lot. I feel anxious a lot. Well, this is where it's helpful to dive into the original text, which was written in Greek. And in the original Greek, there are different verb tenses. And one of those verb tenses is the present active tense. It's different than ours. It's not past, present, future verb tenses. It's present active. And what that means is a now and ongoing state, a perpetual state. Could it be that what Paul is encouraging us is do not be caught in a perpetual state of anxiety? What is Paul saying? You might have fear, but fear doesn't have to have you. It doesn't have to have its grips in you. The difference is what controls you, what has its hooks in you, what controls your heart and your mind on a day-to-day basis. All of us have fear. The question is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to let control your life? The difference is what controls you. You might have fear, but fear doesn't have to have you. And Jesus offers us something Instead, as Paul continues in verse 7 of that same chapter, and the peace of God that transcends what? All understanding. When it doesn't make sense, when the news is saturated by fear, when your Facebook feed is saturated by fear, when all your friends and family are freaking out, you can stand, and I didn't show you that clip for no reason, like Bruce Wayne, and stand in the face of your fear, and it's swarming all around you, and God says, this isn't just some willy-nilly answer. I'm saying, you can actually experience the peace 
of God right in the middle of your fear. That is the promise of God, that he is always with you, that he will never leave you, and that he will never forsake you. And that peace is available to every single one of us today. Can I get an amen? It's available for you. He cares for you. That's my sermon. Now I'm just going to tell you how I'm feeling. Because I would love to stand up here and say, I do what I just preach all the time. Wow, Pastor John, he must not have any fear because he can just preach himself out of it. Do you realize that that more than half the time we're preaching up here, we're preaching to ourselves? And we're just hoping somebody else here needs it as well. I don't know about you, but given the last couple weeks that we've had, I've just been really, really sad. And I was feeling this way a week ago when we had our Wednesday service after the tragedies that just happened in Texas and Buffalo. And I was feeling this way, and I was feeling not often your pastors are speechless. Well, you know, John, you're a spiritual leader here in Des Moines. you got to come out with some clever, witty saying to put on social media that will just tie it all up nice in a bow, and then we can move on. What do you do when you can't move on? What do, you, what do you do when you feel so heavy? And it is no mistake, as we plan these sermon series out, sometimes a year in advance, guess what sermon series was planned to start on June 5th, 2022? When life gets really tough. And I didn't have anything to say. Because I just really sad. Asian American churchgoers, African American brothers and sisters going to the grocery store, kids and their teachers at school, and as of last Thursday, college students at a church that we know very well, Cornerstone up at Ames, going to college ministry. And our church is full of every single person made in the image of God, equally valuable, every single one of those groups. God's heart is breaking. And ours should too. And I think that sometimes we feel like we have to move on really quickly. But unprocessed grief will bubble over and overflow in negative ways in every other area of your life if you don't process it. If you don't invite Jesus into your pain. And I've just decided I'm not going to try to pretend everything's okay anymore. We're going to be the kind of church where it's okay to not be okay. We're going to be the kind of church where it's okay to ask for help. We're going to be the kind of church where somebody comes up to you on a Sunday morning and says, hey, how's it going? Everything good? That you can say, no, I'm devastated. And it starts with your pastor. I'm, I'm wrecked because I'm a dad too. And I can tell you that last week of dropping my kids and picking them up for school, we walked together a little closer and I held their hands a little bit tighter. This affects all of us, and I'm trying to embrace my humanness with God and with you, and I would invite you to do the same. Don't rush through it. Process it. The pain is real, and I am so glad at times like this that when we're feeling overwhelmed and we don't know what to say, and I don't want to preach this sermon. I had a completely different sermon written as of Thursday night. But we believe that God's word directly speaks 
into the situation that we find ourselves in. In a world saturated by fear, where we feel angst, we feel overwhelmed, God's word says this, 1 Peter speaks right into the overwhelming feeling that we have. Let's say it together. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I know some of you hear that and say, oh, yeah, 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 you know, God still loved the world and God's got the whole world in his hands. No, God cares for you. He knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he knows the fear that you hold inside today. He knows the tears that fall. He knows the anxiety that consumes you sometimes. And he says, bring it all to me. And so I think I'm just really sad. (laughs) And I found myself crying out to God a lot over these last few weeks. And as it turns out, the Bible has a name for that. And this is a millennium-old practice, and it's called lament. Everybody say lament. Lament. I'm guessing that you don't know a lot about lament. Maybe you do, but I don't know a a lot about lament because we don't like to be uncomfortable. As humans, our normal reaction is try to move out of uncomfortability as soon as humanly possible. So we come up with all these coping mechanisms in life in order to grieve when actually what we need to do is just grieve and not push it aside. Lament is this. Let's define lament this way. Lament is is all throughout scripture. It's an intentional crying out to God for divine intervention, for God to do what only he can do. It's a tool that God's given us to process the pain and suffering of this world. Unprocessed grief will spill over. It always does, and I've seen it time and time again. Lament is this beautiful, beautiful tool that God gives us. It's it's throughout the Old Testament. It's all over the Psalms. There are Psalms of lament. It's in the major and the minor prophets. And of course, there's an entire book about lamenting, and it's called... Lamentations. See, people say, wow, there's a lot of lamenting. Why is that book so long? Because God had a lot of things to lament about. God's people had a lot of things to lament about. Just to give you a picture of that. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 20. Lord, see my anguish. My heart is broken and my soul despairs. In the streets at that time, the sword kills. And at home, there is only death. Some of you are really feeling that. You're like, wow, that's powerful. That speaks to right where we're at today. That passage was written over 2,000 years ago during the destruction of Jerusalem when God's people were being overrun and everything that was once held sacred to them is falling apart before their very eyes. 2,000 years ago, and yet we think that God's word is not relevant to our lives today, speaks directly to it. Why is lament essential? Why is lament? For for several reasons. Number one, it gives us a healthy outlet. Every single one of us is going to seek comfort somehow. It is the natural human response. Why does lament matter? Because it gives us a healthy outlet. Whatever you're carrying today, you don't have to carry alone. I've said it once and I'll say it again. When we are experiencing uh, negative emotions, pain, suffering, grief, sorrow, There's two responses that we normally have. We either stuff it or we inflict it. And if we stuff it long enough, we end up inflicting it. It will spill over. We need a healthy outlet for our pain. Secondly, it allows us to not grow numb. I know, and I have felt my heart drifting in this way as well. Another one? Are you kidding me? I haven't even stopped grieving for the last shooting, and now there's another one? Oh, I know. I know the answer. I'll just shut my heart down. Because then I don't have to feel it anymore. And I'll just grow numb. Better yet, I'll just get bitter. 
And I'll just become one of those bitter people that, that's a cynic, that's angry at God, that's angry at the world, that's angry at my politicians, that's angry at the news, I'm angry at my family, I'm angry at kids, or whatever it is. What good is that going to do? What is that going to fix besides rob you of all of your joy and all of your peace? No, we can't grow numb. We can't get to the place, especially as followers of Jesus, where we look at the things that are happening and say, well, that's just the world that we live in. It's all falling apart anyway. It might be falling apart, but Jesus is inviting us to join him in putting it back together. That's the mission of the church. That's what we're called to do. I don't want my heart to grow numb to the things that God's heart breaks for. I can't let that happen. As hard as it is, we cannot let ourselves grow numb. And last but not least, what lament does, most importantly, is it refocuses where our hope lies. And that's what I love about the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of lament. What the Psalms allow us to do is to shake our fist in anger at God with one hand and have an open hand to God's mercy and faithfulness and provision with the other. And Psalm 42 is a beautiful example of this. Let's read it together, verse 5. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Do you see it? Here's what lamenting is not, complaining. Here's what lamenting is not, blaming. Lamenting is crying out to God, for systematic change, for divine intervention. And yet almost every psalm of lament ends this way. And yet it's not the end of the story. And yet I put my hope and trust in God. Even in the face of our greatest fears surrounding us, we always have hope in Jesus. Amen? We always have hope in Jesus, no matter what is flying our direction. What does psalm like that tell? What, what does lament teach us? Christians are the only ones that can grieve with hope. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have that victory, you just get sucked down into a spiral of despair. I've been to too many funerals that there is no hope as you're walking out of that funeral. Because there's nothing beyond death, so why would there be hope? Christians are the only ones that can experience every human emotion and yet not have it define our lives. We don't have to be afraid of negative emotions because we know that's how God created us, in his image, to be human. And when I cry and when I weep and I get angry at God in the state of the world, it just means my heart beats for the things that his heart beats for. I don't have to be ashamed of that. I'm going to cry around my kids all the time. And I'm desperately trying never to look at my kids and say, stop crying. Because I want them to be able to express that. And if that's how they need to express it, that's how they need to express it. And they need to see their mom and dad cry too. That we're not perfect, that we don't have it all together. And yet, I also want them to see this, that every single time that even mom and dad get scared, we turn back to our hope. We turn back to the rock. We turn back to the fortress because there's only hope with Jesus. Amen? We always go back. That's why we have the victory. This is a chapter in a long, long story. And a pandemic is not going to win. <laughs> the evil and the violence and the hatred and, and the racism and world wars 
And certainly gun violence is not going to win because Jesus wins because he is the resurrection and the life. Amen? That's where our hope comes from. And I knew that we would get to this point of the sermon, and certainly I would need to take a breath, and maybe you too as well. So everybody just collectively, let's just take a deep breath. I knew today was going to get a little heavy, so a quick story about the goofiness of my life. I did, not show, I did not show you that Batman clip for any reason. I can't stand bats. And a couple years ago, well, this is more than a couple years ago, nine years ago, when our son Caleb had just been born, he and Tiffany were out of the house and I was home alone. And I was working at my dining room table. I was really, really focused. And all of a sudden, I notice there's this black thing swirling above my head. And I kid you not, my very first thought was, oh, there's a bird in our house novice first-time homeowner that I was. Oh, it's just a big black bird with flapping wings that happens to be dive-bombing at my head every five seconds. No, that's not a bird, John. That's a bat. And I will be honest, the very first reaction that I had was, I got to grab something. What's the closest thing to me? A rack of TV trays. And I grab a TV tray, and I'm putting it over my head, trying not to take any swats out. I know you're not supposed to kill bad, all that kind of stuff, but I wanted it done. I wanted it over. And in that moment... I was gripped by fear because I was home alone. And I'm like, I got to get rid of this thing. I heard, I heard once that if you open a door, they'll go towards the light because they want to get out. And so I'm running with the TV tray through my living room over and I try to open the door and get it open and it's all open. The problem is in the course of doing that, I lost track of the bat. And now I'm home with the bat that I don't know if it's there or if it's not there, but I'm not taking that chance. Now I want you to track with me. I have some choices in this moment. When I'm surrounded by fear, doesn't matter if it's a bat or if it's something more than a bat like we're facing in our world. I had some choices. Number one, I could just deny it. <laughs> I'm sure it's just a bad dream. I'm, I'm just dreaming. I'm actually sleeping. I'm going to pinch myself. Bats aren't real. Nobody gets bats in their house. It's not a real issue. Let me just deny it and maybe the issue will go away. Well, that doesn't work. Oh, if that doesn't work, then I'll just blame it. I'm going to blame it on the previous homeowners that they didn't get that bat proof done. I'm going to blame it on ourselves that we didn't get the bat proofing done in time, but that's not going to help anything. Or I could just try to face it alone. I could try to go to sleep and get zero minutes of sleep that night because I, have I mentioned that I can't stand bats? I just can't at all. I don't know what God was thinking when he created bats. Like, you go back to creation, and God's like, man, you're on it. Like, lions and tigers and bears, they're courageous and big and strong and ferocious. And God's like, let's have some fun. Let's do a giraffe. Let's make their neck twice the height of their body. Like, that'll be fun. Let's make some, you know, birds and, and fish and all creative. And then, oh, I don't know, God was just having a rough afternoon or something. Let's create a little flying vampire. Let's do that. And let's call it a bat. Man, I got questions for God. I'll tell you what. I've got choices. I can handle the fear that surrounds me in a completely negative, unhelpful way. But what you got to realize is that every, three, every one of those three responses is rooted in control. If I can just do those things, then I will feel in control and I don't have to be afraid. Instead, Jesus in his word gives us a healthier route to respond to the pain and the suffering and the fear that surrounds us. And I'll use the story to illustrate that for you. Number one, we lament. Oh, there was plenty of lamenting going on. And we cry out to God and lament. And so what did I do? I got on the phone and I called my dad. 
and I let him have it. I mean, I lamented about bats, and I said, I don't know if it's here, I don't know if it's not, but I can't handle this, and I just let him have it. I cried out, and so much so that I called my brother, and I lamented to him as well. And in that moment of crying out, wouldn't it be silly of me to say, oh, yeah, Dad, um, well, I got a bat in my house. It's not that bad. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. Actually, I'm not doing okay. I am not okay. That's what lament gives us permission to do. That's what God gives us permission to do. Number one, don't isolate. The worst thing that I could have done in that moment is try to fight through that fear alone. And some of you have figured out a coping mechanism in your life is that when you're hurt, you're offended, you're broken, you're sad, or you're afraid, you run away from Christian community instead of right into the middle of it. And you're missing out on the power of the local church. Some of you, your coping mechanism is that I'm going to run away from God instead of running to the one that can actually help me. Whatever it is that you're going through, you don't have to do that alone. And we talked about it a few months ago. Some of you are not doing okay with the state of the world. Mental illness is a real thing. Mental health is a real challenge in our world and in this church. And I've said it once and I'll say it again. If you are struggling with chronic mental health issues, chronic stress, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, whatever it is, that does not make you less of a Christian or that your faith is not strong enough or that God loves you any less. It means that you're a human being that is desperate for a savior just like the person sitting next to you. Amen? That's what that means. You are a human being. Don't isolate. Don't try to go through this life on your own. Reach out for help. And so I did. I did. I reached out to my dad and my brother, and, and then we pray. And we pray like we've never prayed before. And guess what my dad did after he heard my lamenting? He prayed for me. He prayed for me, and then he said, I should come over, shouldn't I? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to have you here like five minutes ago. That would be great. And so my dad came over. I called my brother. He came over. And I, I'm going to paint the picture for you here is my brother is a pastor, my dad is a pastor, and I happen to be a pastor, and there we are walking up the stairs, three tennis rackets, and I'm pretty sure that I have a laundry basket over my head with our flashlights, and in that moment, I turn around and I look at my dad and my brother and say, I'm pretty sure this is going to be a story and a sermon someday, so just get ready. (laughs) You're welcome. And here we are, and the last step there is that you take wise action, and I want you to notice something. Prayer didn't replace action, and action didn't replace prayer. And there is something going on in our nation where we have to put ourselves in one camp or another. It's always either or. It cannot be both and. And the problem with that is for Jesus, prayer and action were never either or. They were always both and. And I'm going to show you that here in a second. But there has been an uproar recently, and backlash at this phrase, thoughts and prayers. And hear me say this, rightly so if it's empty. Rightly so if we just go through the routine. Rightly so if we're people that just talk the talk and we never walk the walk. A world is desperate for the church to lead out. A world is desperate for the church to just send more than thoughts and positive vibes. The world needs Jesus, and they can experience Jesus through this. And that's why we have to be people of prayer and action. They were never meant to be separated. Why? Because for Jesus, they weren't. 
Every morning, Jesus gets up and spends time with his Father. When the world is pressing in, when life is getting stressful and busy, it says Jesus left the crowd and he went off to pray. At one point, he even said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. Pick up on this in the New Testament. James 5, 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James is just doing what he saw modeled in Jesus. For Christians to throw out prayer is to dismiss the very heart and character of Jesus himself. We can't do that. The answers don't always come in our time and in our way, but you can't throw out the one that we need the most. You can't throw out the Savior. For Jesus, it was never that way. The prayer of a righteous person is what? Powerful. And what? Effective. Effective in changing hearts. Effective, effective in, in changing our hearts, effective in changing the hearts of uh, r- political leaders around the world, effective in changing the hearts of people that would inflict violence on others, effective in changing the hearts of that person that you love to get into Facebook chat debates with. Do you think if I just really say this really clever statement that they'll repent on the spot and turn over to Jesus? I've never seen that happen. Prayer changes things. Prayer is action. It is the most actionable item that you can do. Prayer changes things, and we can't throw it out. If prayer is just wishful thinking, then I'm not for thoughts and prayers. But my Bible says that prayer is way more than wishful thinking. It's getting on your knees and crying out to the one that can change the human heart. Amen? And we will not stop praying. That's what we are called to do. But it doesn't end there. It's way more than some passive activity. I love what Mother Teresa once said. She's a feisty little nun. I love her for this. Mother Teresa said, I used to believe that prayer changes things. But now I know that prayer changes us. And God often uses us to change things. Is prayer about you sending up those requests to God or is prayer about you being changed? To align your will with his. And and there is no historical record of Mother Teresa being canceled by culture for her thoughts and prayers. Why? Because she walked the talk. And so did our Savior. And so did our Savior. Jesus never drew up this distinction. All throughout God's story, God and then Jesus embodying the very nature and character of God shows us that time and time again, God's heart is for justice. God's heart is for change. God's heart is for the oppressed that whom violence is being inflicted upon. If you want a picture of that, it's not one of the most cheery passages in all of Scripture, but might be one of the most important for the day and age that we live in right now. I know a lot of you have really been pouring into the book of Amos recently. Or not. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. We're going to put it up on the screen. This is your God speaking to followers of God. I hate... I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, your worship services, your prayers, your sermons. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God's heart has never been either or. It's always been both and. God's heart 
breaks, going through the motions religiously without a commitment to walking it out and pursuing justice wholeheartedly is empty Christianity. Amen? It's always a both and. It's never an either or. We can't just go through the motions. We live it out. We say, God, how do you want to change me? James picks it up in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but have no deeds? In other words, if prayer becomes a crutch for not acting on the things that God has already called us to be obedient on, then it's empty. Then I want nothing to do with thoughts and positive vibes, but that's not what the Bible says prayer is. The moral of the story is if we want to base our response as a church to the pain and the suffering and the fear and the brokenness of our world, then we get down on our knees and we pray for our nation like we've never prayed before and we fight with everything that we've got for justice to roll down like rivers. Amen? That is our response as a church. That's who we are. Never an either or, but always a both and. And I believe that Christians should be leading the way in that. One of the the visions that God's given us as a church is this big old church, and I look up at that steeple that you drive up and look at every time that you come as a church, is to be a lighthouse. Is to be a lighthouse in the community that I believe that Christians should be leading the way and having the conversations that nobody else wants to have. Because people are going to talk about it, and people are going to form their own opinions, and we want that to be informed by the word of God. We want our response. We want our social stances. We want our politics to be seen through the, the lens. I want to make up my mind on those things through the lens of God's word and not view God's word through the lens of my politics or through my social stances or my long-standing worldview. I want God's word to inform that more than anything else. And so what does it look like for us to lead out on that is to have the, creative, uh, the courageous conversations, to let our voice be heard, to call your political leaders if you need to, to work together as local and civic and political leaders to work together for change, not to score political points, but to save lives. Amen? Because people are dying, and this isn't a political game. This is life. These are men and women, boys and girls made in the image of God. That's why we pursue this. That's why we talk about this. Oh, Pastor John, don't get super political. Well, the problem with that is that politics are all about people, and God is madly in love with people. Don't stop following Jesus at the risk of getting too political or possibly offending somebody. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus no matter what. It matters who you vote for. It matters more who your king is. It really matters who you vote for. Everybody wants Jesus to be their savior. Not everybody wants Jesus to be their Lord. Who calls the shots in your life? Who's the king for you? And because Jesus is our king, we don't look at a complex issue in society and say, oh, there's the solution right there. It's just this simple solution. We can't do that. It's a complex issue. It's a complex solution. But that doesn't mean that we don't pursue it. And we come at it from multiple angles. We're called to be a leading voice in those conversations, to have the tough and necessary conversations. Secondly, we want to continue to invest in students emotionally and spiritually in this church. The number of conversations that we have had about the connection between emotional and spiritual health, the number of conversations that we've had about fear and anxiety and depression and, yes, even suicide with our junior high and senior high students in this church. We have done that more in this last year than in the 14 previous years combined that I can remember of student ministry. And rightly so. 
Our kids and our students need adults that are not standing at a distance blaming them or blaming video games or blaming the culture or blaming the media. Our kids need adults to come and sit next to them on the side of the road and say, this is hard, isn't it? But we're not going anywhere and we're going to put our arms around you and we're going to love you and we're going to listen to you because that's what followers of Jesus do. Amen? We need men and women like that. And do you know that when there were the shootings at East and the shooting at an after-prom party for Roosevelt High School, of which some of our students were there, a nice, tame, adult-supervised party that got out of hand, do you know where they ran to when they were grieving? The church. (laughs) They came here, and we met with them, and we've met with them multiple times. Praise God for that. When there's the shooting in Ames, Cottage Grove is one of the churches we're partnering with for the Juneteenth bash. They were planted by Cornerstone Church where this happened, and we got on the phones right away and connected with their pastors and said, we love you and we are praying for you because at times like this, it doesn't matter what the name is on the church door. It matters that we're on the same team for the kingdom. Amen? That's what it's about. We cannot draw up lines of divisiveness in times of tragedy. That's the worst possible thing that we can do. So we pour into our students. We continue to raise awareness and support for those that are struggling with mental health. (laughs) And I just put this one up there. I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but God kind of put that on my heart, and it was pounding this week. What if in the midst of all of this, when people thought about Hope Elam, one of the first things that they thought of is, oh, that's the church where all the men mentor young boys in our community without father figures. Oh, Hope Elam, that's the church where all the women of their church, they know they're not perfect, but they're taking the younger women of this community under their wing and showing them a living, breathing example of what it looks like to depend on Jesus when life gets hard. What if that's what we were known for? What if as adults we didn't think, oh, I don't have all the answers and I can't give it away and I can't mentor somebody and I can't disciple somebody? Yes, you can. Not because you're perfect, but because you're an imperfect person that's following a perfect Savior. Men and women of the church, we need you to rise up and to invest in the students and the youth of this city. Let's stop going Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and let's do the Bible. Let's live it out. The kids and the students of this city are hurting and they are desperate for mother figures and father figures to point them to Jesus, to sit with them in their pain. Let's do the Bible. Let's be a church that knows for what we do outside these walls as much as we're known for what we do inside the walls. Let's be that kind of a church. What does this have to do with gun violence? Everything. Because we're not just going to be a reactive church, we're going to be a proactive church. We're going to be the church as we say every single week. What would it look like for us to continue, and we are going to do this no matter what, to educate God's people on his heart for racial unity? Enough with supremacy. Enough with white supremacy. Enough with one race being better than another race. We need education, and we need awareness, and we need to continue to walk the walk as the beloved community as Hope Elam. Amen? That's what God's called us to do. It's all of it, and every single one of us is called to it. We don't say, oh, that's for other people. That's for the radical Christians. I don't know any other kind of Christian. I don't. You're either all in or you're not. We want our hearts to break for the things that God's heart breaks for. It can feel overwhelming. Well, that's quite the list, John. Where do we start? How do you know where to take action? 
How do you know what to post on social media? How do you know how to talk to your kids about gun violence and tragedy? How do you know what you should do? How do you know what you should get involved with? Oh, wait, you pray because it's active, because prayer and action work together, unified, in a unified response. We pray because prayer aligns our will with God's will. And when you pray and when you seek God wholeheartedly, be prepared for Jesus not to fit inside of an American-made, human-made, two-party system. Be prepared for Jesus to not fit. Be prepared to follow Jesus. And if following Jesus leads you a little bit side out of the human box that you've created, of the political party that you've been a part of for most of your life, then follow Jesus. Then follow Jesus no matter what. He's the king. What is our response to pain and suffering and fear as a church, grief and lament, and it's okay to stay there for a little bit. Don't isolate yourself. Put your hope in Jesus' victory and see prayer and action as complementing each other, not somehow contradicting each other. Don't buy the bag of lies that the world is selling you that it's either or. It's always been both and. Speaking of emotions, I was reminded this week on multiple fronts that I think a part of becoming a parent is that you just cry all the time. Can I get an amen? I'm not just talking about the state of our world. I'm just talking about life and having kids or grandkids. You just cry at everything, and that includes TV shows and movies. And I was told this last week that this last week was the penultimate episode of the TV show This Is Us. I don't know if there's any This Is Us fans out there. I stopped watching like three episodes in because I just couldn't handle it emotionally. Just overcome. And that's okay. It's okay to just cry. And I uh, was reminded of this episode from a few years ago about the one of the main characters named Randall. And what you got to know about Randall is in this scene, he's sitting with his wife and his three beautiful daughters, and they're sitting there, and he's just had one of those weeks, you know, like we've had one of those weeks. But you got to know the backstory on Randall is that as a little boy, he was left on the step of the fire station by his mom. And she just walked away, abandoned. Abandoned by his dad, got into and every kind of narcotic that you could get into and just never present in his life. And he's reeling because of that, not having a father figure. Left on the doorstep of the fire station as a little black boy in a predominantly white town. The rest of the show shows hatred, violence, racism, and he's reeling from that. And the rest of the show, he's recovering from all of that. And yet in this scene, I love his wife that's sitting next to him, reminds him, reminds him of what God can do even in a life that's filled with tragedy. And I don't know who's writing the show, This Is Us, but there's some Holy Spirit stuff going on in that writing room, I will tell you that. Take a look. This pain is not forever. This grief is not forever. This moment in time is not forever. Because God's still in control. And so we fight on. We fight on, Hope Elam. Because there's always hope. And right in the middle of our fear comes the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. In verse 20, it says, I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. 
Yet I dare, I still dare to hope when I remember this, that the faithful love of the Lord never ends and his mercy never ceases. God is looking for some men and women that still dare to hope. God is looking to us as the church to not grow numb or bitter or cynical, to shut down our hearts, but to remember that the story is not over. We fight on, because if ever there was a time for the church not to shrink back, it's now. God is calling the church to step forward, to have the tough conversations, to make the call, to make the changes, to get out of our comfort zones, to do things as a church that we've never done before because we live in a world that has never existed before. I still have hope. I still dare to hope. Do you still dare to hope that through Jesus, the local church can be the hope of the world? And we put our hope not in ourselves or our abilities or our politicians or our political parties or our governments or our social stances, our opinions. We put our hope in Jesus Christ and we're people of prayer and action. Amen? That's God's call. We put our hope in Jesus Christ. Wherever you're at, in the room or online, let's stand together and let's prepare our hearts for Holy Communion. If you're at home right now, go ahead and grab those elements just so you're ready. If you're in the balcony, a lot of you should already have yours, but just wait and be patient. We'll get to that in a second. If you're down here on the lower level, you'll, have, uh, you'll be able to come forward and receive your elements here in just a moment. And we remember that that same Jesus on the night that he was betrayed was with his followers, people like you and I. And he said, this is my body. And he broke it, he blessed it, and he gave it to them, saying, take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Take and drink. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is my promise to you that I will wash you clean. Do this in remembrance of me. As we prepare to receive the elements together as a church family today, let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, our Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Wherever you're at, you can have a seat. Uh, again, those of you that are in uh, the balcony today, it's easier for you to just have yours when you came in. If you didn't get one, the ushers are standing by and just gently wave your hand and they'll get one to you up there. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. If you would like to come forward and receive one, you are certainly welcome to come down. It's your church. You can do that. For those of you that are down here on the lower level, at this time I'm going to invite our ushers and communion assistants to come forward. We'll have some stations up here at the front. And as the ushers lead you, we ask that you come down the aisle uh, and you'll receive your kit and then you can take that back and receive it at your seat wherever you go. But come forward, uh, uh, head back to your seat around the outside and please remain standing as I'll invite our worship team forward as well to lead us in worship. There are gluten-free elements available. Just ask your server if you need those as well. Communion is open to everyone that wants to experience the love and the grace of Jesus. All is ready. Come forward.
Thanks so much for joining us. To find out more about Hope Elam, follow us on Instagram at hope.elam or visit our website at hope.elam.org.